0: Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Fletcher. Welcome into another episode of Chasing Better Conversations, my podcast on the power of conversations to seed meaningful change and bring about lasting improvement. I am especially excited today because we are being joined by a pioneer of law firm sales and business development. In 2001, Steve Bell created one of the legal profession's first sales functions at the firm Womble Carlisle Sandridge and Rice, now Womble Bond Dickinson. And he, he has consulted with professional service firms all around the world about how to make law firm sales more professional and effective. Prior to innovating in the legal vertical, Steve helped found sales forces at Price Waterhouse and Grant Thornton, where he was an equity partner. Steve is a certified Gallup strengths coach, which means that he focuses on leveraging the strengths of his clients as distinct from trying to fix weaknesses. He has helped law firm sales programs survive and thrive in the face of unforeseen global events, including the 1987 Black Monday, 9-11, the dot-com bubble burst, the Great Recession, and of course, the global pandemic. He helped establish the BD functions at the global law firm network Lex Mundi, and he maintains an extensive global network of law firm leaders, marketers, thought leaders, and commentators. Today, Steve is a principal with Law Vision Group, which strategically assists law firm leaders in maintaining and growing market position and market share. Recently, Steve co-authored a book, Sam Legal, Turning Key Clients into Strategic Accounts.
1: Steve, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Eric. It's been a while since we've chatted, so I look forward to this conversation.
0: Well, I, I wanted to have you on the uh, on the podcast for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's just a good excuse for us to visit. And two, I learn every time I visit with you, and I, I know that will be the case for, for uh for the folks that tune in, a lot of folks are going to know you at a professional level. Let's back away for a second and, and uh, grab a personal glimpse, if we can. And I tend to rely on three touchstones for uh, a lightning round of personal insight. First one is on your personal playlist. What are two or three pieces of music that that uh, we're going to find? on your playlist that kind of anchor your enjoyment of
1: music. That's easy. Um, you know, during the pandemic, I reintroduced myself to serious classical music again. My favorite symphony is Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 7, and I've been so lucky to hear it live in person twice this year so far, so that's great. Oh, wow. And also we just celebrated Rachmaninoff's 150th birthday, so all during the month of April, I heard many pieces of Rachmaninoff music, but his piano concertos, one, two, and three, are delicious. So I listen to those all the time.
0: Sweet. They're they're certainly worse things to listen to. Do you you venture away from uh, classical at all?
1: I guess I'm single-minded, Eric. So no, I don't uh, venture very far from classical music because as soon as I hit the country music station, I immediately hit Let's Get Back to... (laughs) W.E.T.A. classical here in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Okay. From music to
0: literature, um, a book or two, if you'd like to, that uh, you, without
1: hesitation, recommend to anyone. I, I hope that I don't screw this up too bad, but, you know, the autobiography of Ulysses S. Grant, I think the author was Ulysses S. Grant, (laughs) (laughs) that that's that's just a great book you know it's a compelling piece of literature in an area that i study a lot and another uh another book that i just finished i there's a there's a reason in my life that i'm studying it but it's by um, michael watkins and the name of the book is the first 90 days Mm. so uh, i'm belong to a not-for-profit organization where the leadership is changing and they recommended that we get in touch with how to implement the first 90 days of a new leader. Mm-hmm. So those are two that are on the top of my tongue right now.
0: Outstanding. And I suspect I know part of the answer to this one, at least in terms of how you elect to spend your leisure time. If
1: you get one or two choices, how do you what? where do you go for leisure? Since I left day-to-day law firm life, I have more hours on my hands and I walk a total of six to seven miles a day because I have a young dog that wants to walk a lot. So I go with her on the walk. So that's at least two and a half hours a day right there. And I've gotten into riding the stationary bike. So I ride that stationary bike 45 minutes to an hour per day because I'm in training for the tour de France. I always watch tour de France on television (laughs) in, uh, late June, July. And, I watch the race as I sit on my own stationary bike pedaling along, just a pale imitation of these great athletes who do the Tour de France. That is a ton of what I do. I have a new grandson and I have another grandchild on the way. That takes up a delightful amount of time and the days fly by. I also do client work, you know. That's I'm not saying I don't do that, but um sure. outside outside of the client work those are the things that take all my time, and it's been wonderful, really. Um, thank goodness I did not have to work during the pandemic. I'm, I didn't have to go to an office. I don't have to sit in front of a Zoom meeting all day long. So I have that kind of freedom with the work that I do now, and allows me to get outside a lot, walk around, exercise, enjoy music, and life is good.
0: Let's talk. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the professional arena. Your You clearly have a background in uh, the professional services area. Are there one or two conversations as you think back on uh, you were just getting started or in the earliest days of your professional life, one or two conversations that really influenced you that uh, have stuck with
1: you all these years? Good question. Uh, There are many conversations that I can recall that influenced my direction uh, a lot of times I found myself pursuing one avenue and I reached a decision point is you know is this is this right for me uh, if so, how do I succeed at it? If not, what do I do now? So I went to individuals and these were not fearless conversations with people who had my future in their hands. They were fearful conversations, but they were also brave conversations because I wanted to find out where I stood so about five times in my life, I went to the top person in the organizations that I went to, to figure out where I stood, what the possibilities for my future were. And I got their feedback. And um, many times it was not the feedback that I dreamed that I would get. (laughs) But in every instance, it set me on a new course. And uh, everything that I learned from each segment of my career uh, got deployed when I went into professional services sales. That's one. And another great conversation that influenced me a lot was with a gentleman named in Washington DC named Jim Clifton. Jim uh, was the chief executive officer of the Gallup organization and his father was Don Clifton, a psychologist and educator who developed the it's called the Clifton Strengths Finders. Mm-hmm. So about 2 thirds of the way into my almost 20-year tenure at the law firm Womble, now Womble Bond Dickinson, I learned about the Clifton Strengths Finder, and that was really a miraculous turn at that point in my career. And I say that because um, we spend so much time being critical of one another and slugging it out and doing hard push-ups when we we're working in the law firm life. But uh, Don Clifton, as he thought about identifying the attributes of character that all of us have, he identified 30, 34 of them. And he knew that some handful of those strengths that are, and attributes that every person has were their go-to strengths where they feel powerful and can get a lot done and it's easy and it's entertaining and joyful when you're deploying those strengths. And so his postulate was what would happen if we studied what was right with people versus what's wrong with people. And that's such a positive, aspirational way to look at life. So I adopted strengths as a way to understand myself and to understand other people and to figure that, uh, almost any of us can get a job done. The way that we get a job done is by deploying the strengths that are natural to us. It just makes getting jobs done a lot more fun and enjoyable and productive and a happier life. So those are some conversations that I had. We
0: could probably wrap right there that that was worth, uh, worth the price of admission that, um, I, I, I really love that. Focus on the strengths. Your, your uh, incredibly positive answer, it provides a, a not so natural segue to this next question, Steve. The, it, as we think about current situation, uh, the current, uh, especially professional service environment, are there one or two conversations that leaders of professional service firms are, are not having today that would be beneficial to have. And, and let's stay away from uh, economic uncertainty and things related to that, because we'll get to that in a minute. What what conversations are missing in many leadership uh, boardrooms right
1: now, in your view? Some conversations that are missing, is not just exclusive to professional services firms or law firms. It really applies everywhere. And for any leader, I think that most people need to know that somebody is watching. somebody's paying attention to them and cares about them. And so what I find is leaders in all disciplines, including and maybe especially at law firms, is a leader needs to find out what's going on. Just have a conversation with a person and say, "What's going on here? What's the situation? What are you doing? What are you up to? How's it going? And then finding out or ascertaining once, once the situation is determined, um, is that what you expected? Is that where you're expected to be? Are you getting the results that you were hoping for? And if not, what were the results you're hoping for? And finally, the third and critical one, most important, and I don't hear it very much at all, is, well, how can I help? How can I help you obtain your objectives? So I think around law firms, you, you've probably seen it too a lot, is that in in my discipline, which is sales, it's really important to keep track of what's going on. You know, here's here's your next step in the sales process did you complete it, what happened, and what's next? And if leaders are not asking the questions of the people who have those kinds of step-by-step sales responsibilities, then they tend not to get done. However, if the people understand that the top leader is watching, paying attention, and cares that the steps are unfolding as they're supposed to, then people do the work. Um, So it's just like somebody needs to care about what's going on with the people in their organization, pay attention to it and make sure that they're deploying all the resources and information and help that they can to get the job done
0: and that that does sort of perfectly lead into uh given current the current realities, which uh, include at least a measure of uncertainty, there you can go back and forth on uh, whether people think we're still staring into the teeth of a recession or not. Knowing someone cares, that conversation, just having a conversation uh, is a great place to begin. What, what else, what would you layer on to that given the uncertainties of, of our day? Headlines, there have been plenty of headlines recently about how firms are responding, some of, the, some of it very predictable, some of it uh, maybe a little creative, to um, the potential of severe uncertainties later in the
1: year. I don't blame people who were starting in law firms and have started at law firms within the past 10 years or so for being a little uneasy with the external world that we're in. It's kind of crazy and shaky. But as I look back on my own career, I've seen multiple meltdowns. (laughs) Uh, There was a, a day that the stock market crashed by 500 points. And that represented 20% of the Dow Jones Industrial Average that day. That was remarkable. Uh, we've seen recession. We've seen, I, when I fir- first bought my first home, the, the interest rate was like 11% or 12% mortgage rate. Uh, we saw 9 11. We saw the dot com bubble bursting. We saw the global financial meltdown in 2008, 2009. And people who have been working for 14 or 15 years at law firms have never seen that stuff happen. Hmm. But I can assure you that um, the world and law firms, professional services firms, all accommodated what were really scary times, moved forward, battened down the hatches, pulled together, and got the job done. So, yes, yeah, scary. Uh, it, and the, the news seems to be bad all the time. But I've observed at least four or five times really worse situations than we're in right now. And we all got through it together just by hanging together and and bucking one one another up. Do you you think the way we dealt with
0: 2008, uh, the way that, that firms have dealt with crises before that, do those methodologies hold? Is that... Do we go back to the drawing board uh, or back to the conference room table and say, what do we do in 2008? Is that the right conversation, do you think?
1: That is a great question, Eric, whether the conversation of 2008 applies to, to where we are right now. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, all I would say is that firms turn to their leaders and ne- the leaders need to look like they're calm, whether they're calm or not. And they need to have a plan <laughs> whether they're certain that plan will work or not, uh, it's at times like these that great leadership is at the highest premium possible. And um, I I know we're going to get through this. I mean, we have come through the global pandemic, and so times are a little bit shaky right now. But uh, I thought the whole world was going to fall apart when when the pandemic first started. And, in fact, it was the most one of the most revenue-positive, profit-positive episodes in the history of law firms. So we just don't know what the future is going to hold. But when we're dealing with professional services firms and law firms, we're talking about some of the most brilliant, talented people who have a sense of responsibility and achievement that's off the charts. So I don't know how we're going to get through this, but I'm totally confident that we will
0: little bit of a turn,
1: uh, but
0: not too dramatic a turn, Steve. We probably wouldn't be doing justice if we didn't at least raise the subject of artificial intelligence and the seemingly just almost overnight um, prevalence of of AI in so many of the conversations uh, that are being had in the marketplace at large, but certainly, uh, having some impact inside law firms. What are your thoughts on how should that conversation, what should that conversation look like?
1: Yeah. That the, uh, chat GPT type artificial intelligence sure to get unleashed on us really quickly. Yeah, And I didn't expect it or anticipate it, but just by context, I'm reading a biography of Alan Turing. He's, hmm. uh, known as the, you know, one of the fathers of computing and certainly in terms of artificial intelligence. And he was doing this work in the late 1940s and 1950s. And he postulated how uh, a true test of the efficacy of computing is if a person could be having a conversation between a live person and a computer and it was impossible to discern which was which. So he was thinking about this back in the 1950s. So, yeah, we can say that this is all new. But he he expected that we would be at this point a lot earlier than we are right now. So, yes, absolutely, I'm not a, an authority on artificial intelligence. And I know that people are looking at it very seriously at the policy level, at the firm level, at the practice level and professional level of law firms. But let me say this about artificial intelligence is that it has been – Deployed in our day to day life for a long, long time, and I think you only have to look to a place like Amazon, you know, which is the premier uh, selling platform. Right? It's, mm-hmm. It totally uses artificial intelligence and has for a long time. It knows what we bought. It knows it uh, knows to, what to offer us. It makes commerce instant with one click of the button. It knows uh, what other people who bought what we just bought. Are going to buy so there's that in customer service uh, artificial intelligence has always been at play all of these surveys how did we do you know all that is artificial intelligence and my neighbor across the street from me here in Fairfax Virginia just became the CFO of a platform that is using artificial intelligence to observe sales conversations between salespeople and customers And to rate those conversations and to make suggestions about how they could have gone better. So, yeah, even though the most visible stuff is the chat GPT kind of artificial intelligence application, it's been in our lives in a serious, serious way for quite a while. So um, I hope that it doesn't uh, get out of control. And somehow I think that now that people are focusing on it so much, we'll be fine.
0: Safe to say that at the at the very least, we should be talking about it. I mean, as it is here. We are dealing with it. Uh, to ignore and hope that it doesn't impact um, workflow in, in, a, in a law firm or any professional service arena is is probably not the smart
1: path to take. I wish I knew how artificial intelligence is going to change our lives, but um, yeah. I'm going to try to be very, very careful and understand that I'm look. I'm looking at this screen, Eric, with a photo, you know, with an image of you on it. I hope that's really you. Yeah, it looks yeah, like yeah. you and it sounds <laughs> a lot like you. So at this moment, I think, I think I'll believe that it's you. Okay. How about a little,
0: a uh, little bit of a, a lightning round. If you could have a conversation today with one or two people living or dead about any topic, who would you choose to sit down and visit with?
1: One person I would love to have conversation with right now, and I wish I had when he was alive, was my grandfather. Mm. And I, I say that in the context of the past three years of living through this global pandemic. My grandfather in 1918 was uh, inducted into the U.S. Army. He was going to be an ambulance Corman in france uh, during the first world war so he married his high school sweetheart on march 4th 1918 and he immediately deployed to fort riley kansas and in particular there was a camp there named camp funston <laughs> and that is where on the 11th of march 1918 the first spanish flu incident in the world i believe happened at camp funston fort riley kansas at exactly the time that my grandfather was entering the service and training wow. in the medical corps there wow. and then he shipped out to france and of course the virus got shipped across the sea uh, to the european theater of war and it spread around the globe went around the globe a couple times really rapidly killed some people say 30 40 50 million people mm-hmm. so my grandfather was involved in the very early stages of the Spanish flu. And mm-hmm. he never talked mm-hmm. about it. Would You know, I would have loved, you know, he was in the medical corps. He would have known wow. about it. And I just would have loved, in addition just to knowing what were, what was going on in World War I in France, what was that like? He didn't talk about it, and I was not smart enough to stop the conversation and find out. But, boy, I would love to find out more about his experience with Spanish flu because he was riding right alongside of it as he went to France in, in World War One. That's that's the one I'd really like to have if I if I could do a do over. That's the one I'd do. That'd be pretty
0: rich. It's amazing that question uh, elicits a similar response again. It, it it's almost always you know a family member, um, uh, a mentor, a uh, uh, someone that we would would love to have had as a mentor. But that's a great one, Steve. One conversation that we would all benefit from stopping having. That's a terrible way to ask that question, but one conversation we ought to just stop having and we'd all be better for it.
1: I'm not sure if it's one conversation, but uh, (laughs) to me, uh, I think we should use judgment when our conversations so intensely feature the word I, I, It means that we're talking about ourselves, And I think the richer conversations and the better opportunity for progress is if we are focused on something other than ourselves. And when you are talking to somebody, asking them questions and learning about them, the word I does not appear very often in that conversation. When you're talking to potential clients, uh, I doesn't come up or shouldn't come up. All that often. When you're relaying third-party stories, the word I doesn't come up. But give it a try sometime. Uh, Think about uh, your conversation of the last one hour and how many times did the sentence begin with the word I. And when I stop and think about it, it's kind of embarrassing, really. I, 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 I. And I uh, try to stop that in my mind and turn the conversation outward uh, just to make it less self-centered and self-focused. And I'll learn a lot more when I approach life with a lot less I in the language.
0: That's, that's great. Terrific word. One, is there one conversation that if you know it's going on, the topic is being discussed, uh, you're going to find a way to uh, eavesdrop, to inject one, one topic, one idea, one conversation
1: that's going to grab your attention almost no matter where you are? One conversation, I, uh, or any kind of conversation involving history, uh, absolutely captures my attention. Hmm. I, I was not a history student when I was in college and so forth, but somehow I just got fascinated with the stories and the richness and the episodes of all history. And I'll give you an example of how this unfolded. I, I was at uh, a former teammate of mine at Womble, was holding a reception at a bar in, in Washington, D.C., and she invited me to come, and I really enjoyed it. So I ordered a Bloody Mary, and another guest of that reception was standing next to me, and he said, in his German accent, do you know where that drink's name came from? And I stopped and thought about it for a moment, and I said, well, how about Ble- Bloody Mary, Queen of Scots? And he said, you're right. And, <laughs> and then we launched into a conversation from there about Uh, The Reformation in Europe and Martin Luther and the relationship to the monarchies and so forth. It was just the best, most fun conversation that went on for 45 minutes. He was amazed that he found somebody at a bar to talk to who knew something about Middle Age history and he did know a lot, and I was able to fill in some blanks that I didn't know about. So almost any conversation, though, about history, I love history. I've been reading it all the time for 20 years. So if somebody has something they want to talk about, a historical figure, a, you know, a biography that they're reading, a big event, that'll stop. It'll grab me and suck me in right there. I love history. It's so rich with stories and, and information that I almost don't do nonfiction anymore. I mean, I almost don't do fiction anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I can tell you, loving just how animated. Assuming I'm looking at the real Steve Bell and not, yeah, I understand, not, a, not an avatar. Uh, yeah, I love the animation. And let's wrap up with this. You alluded a moment ago to eliminating to the degree that we can the word "I." Uh, to the degree that that populates our conversation, that's probably not a great sign. Inside, uh, your sweet spot sales, can, can you give us a framework about what a great conversation between, uh, me and you, if I'm trying to sell Steve, uh, I, I want to work with Steve, what's a, what is the
1: framework for a good conversation? Eric, I was not prepared for that question, so this will be a great answer. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I think it's generally true of any, of any sales situation. You know, people don't sell anything to me. I don't think people sell anything to anybody. What happens is that people buy things. Mm-hmm. And it is the fortunate person who understands what a person is seeking to buy and is there with the right product or the right solution at that moment so in my life i have transitioned from thinking about sales process to buying process and what's going on on the end of the person who's buying something and how completely can i understand what's going on with them what their need is what their human motivation is to move forward or not move forward and if we can ascertain the buying process, then it's possible for us to design a selling process that complements that buying process. But especially in the field of law, people don't buy legal services out <laughs> on a whim or because they want to or because somebody's <laughs> trying to sell legal service to them. They buy legal services because they have a need. And I think that the people who provide legal services and are trying to sell legal services would be well guided to pay really close attention to what's going on, on the buying process.
0: That folds very nicely into the, uh, the perspective that's that would make me resist the temptation to make the conversation about me, not use the word I, but start, uh, it's about listening. It's about finding out what, uh, someone is in need of. That's a, that's a great framework.
1: I can't stop my toe hard enough to make it hurt you, Eric. But what I can tell you is (laughs) I've blown a lot of sales by talking so much and using that word I all the time. I finally learned to stop that, to ask a lot of great questions and pay attention to the answers and dig deep. You know, if, if a buyer asks me a question, I turn it right around and I ask, well, why are you asking that question? What's behind the question? What's really going on in your mind that you would ask such a question? as distinct from what all of us former A students always tried to do is be Johnny on the spot and have the terrific answer right on the spot, probe a little bit deeper and find what's inside that question that's driving a person to ask that question. And it's a golden key to getting the business.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. Terrific. Anything that, um, I know you thought about the conversation a little bit before we hopped on anything that, we didn't touch on that you you feel uh, ought to be shared at this point.
1: I would say this, you know, in, in the particular discipline that I spent so many years at, which is sales at law firms, so many people feel that they don't have the attributes uh, to actually be successful at sales. I don't know of anybody at a law firm who can't be great at sales. I know a lot of people at law firms who can't be gregarious, who can't make cold calls, who can't hand slap and hail fellow well met. Not a, very few people can do that, but I think almost anybody at a law firm who's a professional can get it done under the right circumstances. So there is hope for all of us.
0: The whole perspective of, of number one, this is not about me. So I'm going to eliminate the I from the conversation. This, this is, uh, I need to listen and learn. And then to your point, nobody sells me anything that. Um, that means that if I want to solicit your engagement, I'm on your timetable, you're not on my timetable. And so my biggest job is keep the conversation going, uh, not try to wrap it up today.
1: Well, I think that's right. You know, so there is one characteristic of lawyers that I have observed in the years that I spent at a law firm is sometimes they're willing to, uh, make an, introduce themselves to a new person, go have a meeting or two or three. And too many lawyers stop at the third intersection or the fourth. And research from Pricewaterhouse and elsewhere says that it may need 16 touches Mm -hmm. to get through. I think it might be a lot more than that, which is very – this is why I suggest that select very carefully the targets that you're going to pursue because it may take a lot of effort and a lot of touches over a long period of time until they are ready to buy something from you. But don't give up because they're also judging you on your client service. And if they learn from you that you give up after three times, then you may not be the best fit for them. Maybe they're looking for somebody who's going to be in there for 25 or 15 or 75 uh, attempts to succeed. So I'm just saying I, that's, that's a something that I've observed about lawyers is um, the inability or unwillingness to put all into the relationship development that's required to get it done.
0: My friend, thanks for your time. I, I've enjoyed this uh, a bunch. I hope um, I hope it hasn't been too much
1: work for you. It was a pleasure uh, to stop and think about some of the things. Uh, I work really hard and I get caught up and I don't get a chance to reflect, so that's always good. And I look forward to seeing you on the circuit, Eric. Now that there is a circuit again.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, yeah. Tell me where the circuit is and I'll, I'll see you there. I'll send you a note. All right. Thanks, my friend. Thank you very much. What a treat to have a pioneer and a leader like Steve Bell with us today. My takeaways, maybe two or three. One, I'm going to try to eliminate the word I. From my conversations as much as possible. I'll ho- ask you to help me do that. The second is uh, very few of us really sell anyone anything. People make a decision to buy. That uh, our task is to really understand what drives the buying decision, to understand our targets a, ho- a whole lot better. And then finally, given that backdrop, that the idea that there are some people who can sell and some people who can't, just really doesn't hold water. That if the focus is on finding uh, what drives a buying decision, that's something anyone who's really interested, who believes in the product or service that they're selling, that's something any of us can do. Steve, thanks very much for uh, your time today. We appreciate it. And if you'd like to follow Steve, you can catch him on LinkedIn or on. Uh, you can reach him via email at. S Bell, B-E-L-L at lawvision.com. And until next time, here is two respectful, honest, curious conversations that are always about building a bridge to an ongoing discussion.